Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour. I'm your host, Nicholas Thicket. And I'm Morgan Smith. Here we dive into a world dominated by outdated playbooks and old school tactics to compare the B2B companies that are achieving sales at scale and making real money in the process. Join us for weekly interviews and live shows with industry experts and senior leaders diving into the go-to-market strategies that built their success. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. How are you, Morgan? Good morning, Nicholas. Happy Friday from a cloudy and potentially rainy, snowy, sleety day in Denver. Around here, it's sleet, basically. Then it'll be sunny tomorrow because that's how our winters are. So, <laughs> who do we got joining us today? Yes, say hello if you're here. I believe this is um, a first combined stream, <laughs> so everyone who's commenting should be able to see each other's comments. Welcome. Uh, we're so happy to have you here on this Friday to talk through a hot topic. Nick, you've done a number of polls talking through different uh, dimensions of this question. You've been chatting with people in DMs and calls. <laughs> I've been chatting with people in DMs and calls. We've been doing research. And lo and behold, we have this very important question. What is an acceptable closing rate on sales? Good morning, Kit. Good morning, Tiffany, Jeffrey. This was a, I'll, I'll call it what it is. This was a happy accident. I threw out mm, a poll on last Sunday because I was curious. The premise of the whole show, that's how this all started, is I threw out a poll because I was curious. With this poll, I found out from the results that most people were curious what was an acceptable close rate because over 40% of the people that responded just wanted to know. They wanted to stay part of that conversation. So I started reaching out to people and the people that were very opinionated reached out to me and let me know what was up. And some fascinating things trickled out. And I think I'll, 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 I'll I won't bury the lead. I'll just tell you guys right off the bat. If you have, where you start this point, where you start tracking is what makes the biggest difference on your closing rate. People keep telling me that it's based on your product line or service or the size of what you're selling. And it's bullshit. It's a vanity thing that they use to go and tell themselves that they're not, they fit in this box. And I have talked to enough people now with them opening their CRM and actually showing me numbers that there is about a 10% variance from high to low. Well, if it's lower than that, there's, it, it's, you know, there's a problem. But mm -hmm. what it comes down to is where they start tracking. And so this is what trickled out. If you have less than a 20% closing rate, your starting point is a name on a list. Or somebody booked a meeting with you or somebody booked a demo. But essentially, it's name on a list. That's it. If you have a something better than 50%, you are you actually identified a solution together with that customer and you're putting a proposal together and you start tracking from that point. If it's below that, there's a problem. If somebody's getting something higher than 20% they're doing this, that's somebody you should be talking to because they're doing something very right. But now we hit this gray area between that 20 and 50. 
And this is the discovery call. This is the qualification call. And so the biggest difference here is how are you qualifying? Is it firmographic fit? Is it psychographic fit? Are you going beyond just, you know, hmm, are they in the right industry? Do they have the right headcount? Are they getting the right growth? Uh, am I talking to the right department? Uh, am I talking to the right persona in that company? To need and timeline, so, you know, typical BANT. I really like using Medic because it also helps with my account strategy. And but what's Medic stand the... for, Nick? I'll have to go. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't need to put you on the spot. No, I know so it's okay. a long acronym. I, I, I have a cheat sheet, so if anybody wants it, they can let me know and I'll, I can show them how I do my account strategy, but it's metrics, which is, so what is the economic impact of your solution for your prospect? Mm -hmm. So this is going beyond the bullshit vanity numbers. And this is like real. So if you looked at the past hundred customers, 20 customers, what is the average that they see in return? Economic buyer. Who is the person who will make the final decision to buy? Please God, don't ask for them for the first thing on the phone. Because saying, hey, may I speak to the decision maker? It's not a compliment. Decision criteria, very critical. Which criteria will be important to influence the purchase? Tech, technical, economic. And this will become individual. Like depending on what persona you're talking to, they have different things they're judged on. So you'll have to change this and frame it a little bit differently depending on who that is. So keep that in mind. And also the company, especially the bigger they get, they'll have an overlapping strategic alternative that their street strategy they're running and it'll have to align with that as well. Mm -hmm. Identify pain. Thank you very much for throwing that in there. Identify pain. So what are the problems encountered by your prospect and therefore their needs? And champion. Champion is probably the one that you should write down the fastest because it is the low-hanging fruit, it is where your account strategy should start every single time. But what I do is I use this to fill in the blanks and figure out where I need what I need to know before I go and talk to someone. Mm -hmm. And so you can only do so much hidden in the background trying to go and, you know, lurk and find your way in. You got to talk to people. And sometimes it's not VPs and senior leadership. Sometimes it's, you know, SDRs are a great source of information. Salespeople are a great source of information. Uh, I used to love talking to secretaries and EAs because they mm -hmm. knew what was going on better than almost anyone. But mm -hmm. this is the gray area, gray area that is making the biggest impact on sales is not knowing who to talk to and not knowing what a good fit is. What I really love about what you just outlined to summarize from my perspective at least is Generally speaking, most organizations, depending upon where they benchmark, are is it a close rate based on a name on the list or just a, a lead? Or is it a close rate on a proposal? Or is it a close rate somewhere in between on a discovery qualification call? Is the primary driver of what you see as reported close rates. If somebody exceeds that benchmark, we've talked about 20%, hopefully, on leads and 50% plus on proposals, that's something to look into figure out what they're doing well and why and, and who and all of the, the many dimensions there. And if they're underperforming that benchmark, then there's a lot of similar sorts of discovery questions you can ask the team as well to figure out uh, why is that lower than this benchmark. But 
you and I have both seen, both on the comments from your polls and then lots of content that gets floating around LinkedIn, people reporting these absurdly high close rates of like 80%, 90% close. And what you're outlining is that's not a close on a name and an email from somebody that got, you know, signed up for a white paper. That mm -hmm. is so high because the benchmark, or excuse me, the starting position for that close rate is much further down the funnel than other people's much lower close rates. It just depends yeah. upon where the organization sets the starting line. Yeah, it'd be like me and you going having a drag race. And I said, you know, Morgan, jump in your car. You start here. I'm going to start somewhere else and somebody else can start somewhere else. So all three of us are starting at different distances going to the same finish line mm -hmm. and then calling it a fair race. Right. You know, it's still a race. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason why they have a start and a finish on a drag strap. <laughs> and your sales process should too. It doesn't matter. These numbers aren't to go and compare yourself against others. They're benchmarking to know if something's wrong. And so another thing is, if you're seeing a really low number, part of it is you might have a cheaper product. And I don't mean cheaper in quality. I'm talking like, you know, maybe you're sub $500. Maybe you're sub $5,000. I think the, and I have a metric sheet that I pulled from a venture capital firm. And, oh, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So they say, because when you're selling something under $1,000, a lot of the time you cast a, bit, a significantly wider net. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Morgan with account-based marketing or sales with account-based sales development, you have tier one, tier two, tier three, and then like demand gen. Mm -hmm. They're basically doing demand gen and calling it the same thing. Yeah. Lead gen, right? Yep. The tighter your net, the more specific you're targeting, the better this number will be naturally because you're talking to people that are a better fit without even knowing any additional information. Mm -hmm. So on under a thousand, it's very common for prospecting to be an MQL is 5%. Uh, when it's 1,000 to 5,000, they're showing 10%. 5,000 mm -hmm. to 25,000 is about 15%. And what's five to 50 is 20 and then 50 to 500 is 30. And what's really interesting to me about this metrics, which I see, sadly, lots of sales teams don't have too much power over this. <laughs> so for the marketers, I'm going to wag a finger really quick. Prospects are not marketing qualified leads. Those numbers are the percentage of marketing qualified leads out of your pool of prospects. So mm -hmm. if you have a low average contract value on average from this VC data, you should be disqualifying the super majority of them to be marketing qualified leads to be able to pass them off to sales. Because, I, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> sayings, <laughs> um, crap in, crap out. You know, if you're feeding the sales team poor, poor leads, then that's naturally going to influence that number that they can qualify anyways. And the, the main mistake that I see marketing teams make, and this is a result of incentives and metrics that marketing teams are measured on, is any prospect becomes a marketing qualified lead. So with even just the lowest measurable intent, and intent in all ways, there's a logo that shows up in one of your analytics tracking software that says somebody from this company visited your website. That's intent, apparently. And that's enough to say, hey, you should go talk to somebody from this account. To me, that's obviously not 
true. Obviously, they're just a prospect. And marketing needs to do a better job on the front end qualifying those prospects and their intent and their um, willingness to interact with somebody on your site or somebody from your team before they actually make that handoff to sales, which is why inbound programs and particularly demand gen generation uh, programs that create a lot of inbound leads, uh, there's... I just saw Jonathan's comment yeah. <laughs> too. That's very funny. Um, that inbound leads are really high intent leads because they've come to your website and then they filled out a form, for example, or they've booked a meeting with one of the automation tools out there and said, hey, I want to talk to somebody. That automatically becomes a marketing qualified lead because there's a lot of measurable high intent there. It's obvious they want to talk with someone. But the more that you feed poorly qualified leads that will also that puts the onus on the sales team to do a better job of actual qualification on the front end which will um that's to that 20% figure of uh and that will influence closing rates if that's not done well if uh sales qualification is not done well so question from the marketing side yes question the marketing side i guess it would be a better way of phrasing this so if sales' job is to qualify in person or through an interaction, mm. should marketing then be allowing these prospects to self-qualify in this process? From a marketing perspective, maybe. Um, I think it gets a little... I mean, my mind immediately went in like 10 different directions it on depends. like, well, on the industry <laughs> and firmographic uh, and some of the it depends thing that gets thrown around, which isn't a fair answer. So let me do my best to actually answer this. I think that let's start with the mistake companies make is they take any name and email that they get and then they say, we need to nurture this person. So they've set up an email automation sequence that sends out to that person a white paper and a follow-up. And eventually, if they interact in any which way, there's some like very low bar for qualification um, from a marketing side. And that's from, if you think about the big wide range of prospects, hopefully you have a good enough understanding of the market and an account strategy. Whatever go-to-market you're running, a product-led growth go-to-market strategy still should have an account strategy because you're still thinking about who your buyers are and what companies they sit at and how we get their attention. If all of that is in place, your MQLs, again, should still only be a certain percentage of your prospects. So if you look at the wide range of potential people you could sell to, let's say there's 10,000 buyers in your market, and you have you basically take any name or email that comes in through the front door and downloaded a white paper or attended a webinar or whatever and immediately passes them off to uh, sales, not cool in my view. Where I think there needs to be more intelligence done in the demand capture world where you mm-hmm. have somebody who is interacting with a brand, downloading their papers, downloading their, um, uh, I don't know, other resources, interacting on their website, talking with people out on LinkedIn is there needs to be more strategy and intelligence around figuring out what triggers for your company make sense to actually qualify them from a marketing perspective. And the way I like to do that is to look at your existing accounts and see what their behavior was. Because we can make endless assumptions around what it means to download a white paper or what it means to attend a webinar 
But if you notice that a high percentage of leads you get from webinars become closed one accounts, it's a great starting point. And also you can look at the specific intent triggers or buying actions that people take in the marketing funnel that brought them from the webinar to talking to a salesperson and also optimize for those things and also set up triggers for those things. So there's a lot of sort of infrastructure that can be built around looking at your existing accounts. And instead of making assumptions, you can... Uh, <laughs> You can just follow the lead and see what how people are actually behaving. Um, so it's more of a data-based qualification. And I think there's a wide margin of error that can be made. But the there needs to be a raising of the bar on the demand capture side to mm -hmm. from passing along a name and an email from a marketing event to a salesperson. And the best way to do that is just to look at their activity and see how that lines up against other buyers, or at least that's the starting point. Yeah, I agree. I think you have more freedom on your website. And I think mm -hmm. you need to look at what are the common questions that you're getting in, in a sales qualification meeting and the stuff that makes sense where there's just, it's black and white, where there is no gray area, where you're not doing a prescription, where you're not doing something collaborative. It's just, this is kind of the rules like even like price bands, I think that should be on the website before they book so that it helps them have a better expectation of that. I want to loop back. Can I do a soapbox really quick before you loop back to the question or comment? Yeah. Which is what I've seen recently, and this relates a lot to demand capture and what you just said. Yeah. If a predominant number of your sales qualification calls you, and you're disqualifying leads because the price is not... Uh, in their in their range, put it on your website. Simple as that. You have I I understand there's maybe a small niche of complex B two B sales that is customized that you can't put pricing on your website, and not everybody runs product led growth. But even pricing bands, if you don't have a per seat model or whatever, helps customers disqualify themselves mm -hmm. and save your sales team time. Because if you're not going to sell to them anyways for the price that they need, they're not the right customer. So if, if you review 100 sales qualification calls and a super majority or even a majority of them are around pricing and how that's not going to work for the client, put it on your website. That's like a great starting point to help improve your pipeline development. Make <laughs> you think of retail when you walk in a store that you've never heard of before. Yes. And you're like, you're like, oh, that's pretty nice. And you look at a price tag, and you're like, ah, no, I, just kidding. Uh, we can't afford to be in here. Or it's like, hmm, that's actually better than I thought. But yeah, they should have exactly. that opinion walking into the store, walking into that meeting. Versus mm -hmm. not. Okay, ready for some comments? Yep. It's okay to set different close rates benchmark for different types of roles. Yes, mm. 150%. And why I agree with this is that outside sales should have a lower closing rate than inside sales. If not, there's a problem. Whatever your sales development or demand gen movement is, field marketing, either way, they should be starting with more trust. There should be more qualification. And so I would expect it to be significant, probably double or triple what you're seeing on outbound. And then also I will throw customer success in here because they should be having something like a 95% retention ratio and maybe even looking at how many of their accounts grow over a certain set time period. But absolutely. Okay. What do we got next? 
I want to put Jonathan's comment here. <laughs> just gave me such a good laugh. Wait, you guys get leads sent to you? That would be nice to have. Even if not 100% qualified, I'd take any I could get. This, <laughs> such this a good is comment. so common. So yeah, it's common. true. There's a lot of full cycle people that they can't rely on marketing at all. It is just mm -hmm. them. And a lot of companies losing trade shows lost their only source. And so now yeah. it it's tough migrating to remote virtual when it's, you know, you never had an inside sales department. You weren't used to not being in front of customers. And I think that's why knowing these numbers are so critical because it allows us to take charge and not fall victim to our pipeline. We can actually go out and diagnose and figure things out. Like, for example, it's like, how do you know somebody's going to have a heart attack? What are you looking for? Well, on the surface, if they don't feel different and they don't see it, they don't feel it, it's not a problem. But if they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, holy cow, I have never seen somebody with cholesterol as high as yours. And like your blood pressure is skyrocketing. We need to make a change right away or I'm, I'm worried I'll never see you again. This is the difference. A lot of customers are walking around not knowing they're on the brink of something bad happening or needing that change. We need to find the ones that we have to educate them through this process. And that's where those numbers come in is what education is helpful versus what is they don't, they don't see a value in it Absolutely. to get them to that realization that they need to make a change themselves, not us forcing them to make a change. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to help them figure out why now. Yep. And it's also to find, I mean, even to extend that principle a little bit longer, especially um, if you're not able to do a prescription per se, <laughs> you need to do this. And it's more of a transparent conversation. A lot of selling too is figuring out if there is a match right now. Because it could be that there's a match in the future, but maybe there's not a match right now. And Nick has gone through both in previous live shows and in, and in workrooms with folks and other sorts of conversations we've had, like getting somebody to state the problem in their own words is like a great starting point for them to realize they even have a problem. And also if they're not, if they're, if you're targeting, I mean, there's definitely some conditions to this, but if you're targeting larger companies that have budget cycles and, you know, many layers of management, if they're not already spending money on the problem, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> uh, it's an uphill battle because you're not just trying to find a champion to a medic earlier to get somebody to say, this is a great solution. You're also having to empower and enable them to also make the case that it's worthwhile spending money on this general area. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole other battle. And so some of it is, is finding where is the match? Is the match right now? Is the match in the future? What else can we support them with? Not every call or not every deal is going to be perfect right now, but it could be perfect six months from now or perfect after the champion gets a budget approval next year. And obviously those are hard things for us to plan for and adapt to. And, and that's some of the challenge in navigating the sale. But just you know, nailing the fundamentals is a good start and getting them to state the problem in their own words, especially if you can't prescribe it. But that's, not, that's just a starting point. It's not necessarily like a guarantee that navigating the sale will be a lot easier. As we all know, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> people are interesting, man. They can go in all sorts of directions.
And people inquire at different times for information too. Sometimes they're inquiring because they know you're the fastest source to information. And so that's why they seek you out. Other times they are ready and they're, they know they need to make a change. And so now they need somebody to provide a prescription and, or collaborate with them on that solution. So absolutely, we got to figure that's kind of the hardest part because then otherwise, if they know what's going on, why not just have a buy now button on your website? Because obviously you've done such a great job educating them that you can just yeah. focus on retaining them and making sure they see value. I want to pull up exactly. uh, Kit's comment here. It's gold. Oh, yes. How can we balance the push and pull from marketing and sales? Sales will always want more nurtured, qualified prospects and marketing will always want more closed uh, sales on the leads they send. Uh, when is it productive and when is it destructive? I think I'll add the qualification that in most organizations I talk to, marketing does not want more closed sales on the leads they send. They want more leads. <laughs> um, they want more exposure. They want more vanity metrics. I think it's a highly disciplined revenue team if you ever find a marketing team that wants more sales on their leads or a demand gen team. Um, that's not always the case, just to add like a qualification. But Nick, how do you want to do you, do you have any thoughts on this? I've spoken a lot of marketing already, so if I like always like your layer cake analogy or mm. stackable revenue, if we were to tear it from the ground, tear it down to the ground, burn it down, and rebuild it, sales doing outbound is fast. It works. That's why we do it. We can also be super highly targeted. Should be super highly targeted when we're doing outbound because then it provides more value. Marketing should be casting a wider net than what we're doing in sales, getting more and more specific, but they should still have tight segmentation. So it plays on that. Well, if you know, you know, because you're speaking that shop talk. And so it should resonate with who you're talking to. And it doesn't matter if it's a past customer or somebody that's just getting into your community, they should see value in it. And so the whole point of marketing is to help them understand why change why now? Why you? And nurture them through that process in a way that's not confrontational because change is hard. And so if we take them through that non-confrontational way and we're not trying to jam them in because, oh, they downloaded this, obviously they want something. We don't get out of the way that we want to sell and look at the way they want to buy. Then market the push and pull of marketing is marketing is going to go and do the activities, be in the places show up so people have trust knowing that you are a likable, credible source so that when that need comes up, they will reach out to you. This does not happen quickly. It is not instant. And this is why it fails so miserably is people track it on a one, two, three. They track it like it's sales. Mm -hmm. Cause and effect. And when they don't see that direct correlation, they kill it. You know, my LinkedIn took 90 days before I really started to see something other than just getting more people liking and commenting stuff when people started to actually direct message me and ask me questions. And I would say, you know, another, when it hit about that six month to year mark, I think it's going to be really exciting because it'll build up so much more momentum where people are asking for more meetings and they're, they're self-diagnosing and qualifying so that we get to go and do more of that higher level prescription and collaboration on that solution. And so how, how you balance it is, you got to look at where you're adding real value and you need to go and track them in a way that is realistic. And a big part of that just comes down to timeline and don't treat it like it's sales. And then honestly, it's a cultural thing. Marketing needs to be accountable 
for pipeline. If they're yep. just jam packing leads through, sales are going to hate them. And most of the time people overhire sales. And so I sales, <laughs> people love to get served leads. Like, like Jonathan was saying, it's Take just nice when people have, you know, want to talk to you and they book a meeting with you. Mm-hmm. So they'll always pick that versus doing the uncomfortable thing of trying to go and talk to people, especially when nobody's made it clear who they should be talking to or what a good fit looks like. So if we circle back, where does this all stem from? A lack of market knowledge. What is a good fit? What are the accounts we should go after? Yep. The, uh, what had just come to mind, and this is an extension of what Kit asked, but in a different way. And we've talked about this over this last week, Nick, as we've, well, months, uh, as we've begun to see what companies and clients are doing out there. I think that there are two kinds of pipelines. And I think a majority of companies sit in the first bucket. It may not be more than 60 or 70%, but it's definitely most. And then the other companies sit in the second bucket. And the first bucket is what I like to affectionately call the personality-driven pipeline. <laughs> and the personality-driven pipeline is, is when you construct both metrics and sta- stages of the pipeline that really cater to a particular manager's, director's needs. And it would be difficult to communicate that pipeline and those pipeline benchmarks to an external audience. And the reason that companies do that is there's not a lot of knowledge out in the world about how to construct a pipeline and uh, and some of the data that we talked about previously of like good benchmarks and what it means to perform. So it's not a, it's more of a lack of of good knowledge and out in the marketplace and a lack of training about how to construct this, but generally what happens in a personality driven pipeline is each stage is segmented weirdly. <laughs> So you have, you know, your, your prospects and your MQLs feeding into pipeline. So we've seen this before where basic, there are some companies out in the world that have any lead as a part of their pipeline. And as a result, their closing rate plummets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that's very personality driven. That's just a decision some executive made once upon a time said, hey, let's put every lead into the pipeline. To me, it doesn't make sense. Because they're just leads. They're not qualified. They're not necessarily a qualified opportunity. They may not actually contribute to revenue. They're just somebody who might or might not be interested. And so Mm -hmm. the second bucket is a performance-driven pipeline, which some companies who are on top of their game use. And the performance-driven pipeline do use benchmarks. They do construct it in a way that only looks at qualified opportunities. Now, it doesn't mean that the first stage in a pipeline is your 20% win right it could be a you know a discovery call that's the gray area that nick and i Mm -hmm. talked about but more than likely a majority of the performance driven pipeline is just focused on your opportunities so the push and pull with sales is sales needs to build that pipeline marketing needs to help build that pipeline that should be really the goal there we can trust sales to do their job we need to train them to do their job we need to help them do their job But from a marketing perspective, my goal is not just to get more leads for a company or to get more names and emails on a list, but to find the patterns, the accounts, the personas, the intent data, et cetera, that drives 
those those specific opportunities that end up in that first bucket in the pipeline. Because if you take a performance-driven approach, that's where the magic starts happening. And if you take a personality-driven approach, you don't know what the hell's going on, <laughs> basically. Right. Yeah, well said. I'll, uh, I'll pull up Jonathan's next comment here. When reviewing oh, yes. closing ratios and comparing different geographic territories, do you know of any readily available tools to help compare demographics like industry, commercial density, and buying trends? I use the CRM for this. Anything where they're in pipeline, I use a CRM. Before pipeline, I usually use Sales Navigator or some type of intelligent software to segment. And so... I know that you can go and build lists in HubSpot. I don't know if you're using Salesforce or which one you're using, Jonathan, but what you do is you use the criteria like that to build it out. I know you got to go and pick like a dominant category. So maybe you'll do geographic region. And then from there, you'll go and compare what industries in that region are closing more, what size. I've seen companies also build out pipelines based on deal size or sales cycle length. And so they'll segment deals based on something as well. It really depends on how you set yourself up, how you're tracking it. But most of the time you can do that with a CRM. If you want to message me later, we could go and explore that together. And and just to reaffirm something, Nick, you had said earlier, there's always going to be variance. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be variance in closing ratios, comparing companies, comparing different things. The question is, to what degree do those closing ratios vary and why? And even so, so for example, that um, if you have like a, a 2% difference in closing ratios, unless if you're at high volume, ah, eh, who cares? It's 2%, whatever. Unless if you're, uh, but basically 2% matters if you're in e-commerce and you're a B2C company. <laughs> Not only because you have thin margins, but those, that 2% at high volume is, is a lot of sales. But in B2B, when we're selling something a little larger, something a little slower, something a little more complex, 2% on a closing rate, nah. But if you're looking at 20% differentials, wow, that's a, that's a question. That's a consideration to have. And that order of magnitude makes a big difference because a 20% difference is, could be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost revenue, or lost revenue, you know, however you want to think about it. So even comparing the data is an, is definitely a more of an art than a science and it's just trying to get a handle on what's actually going on for me it's always cool to see like okay this city seems to perform better but it's a bigger city than what we usually sell to so there's probably more density like that's a reasonable assumption is our closing ratio ten, you know a magnitude higher than elsewhere no it's like 4 or 5% different okay that's you know that's within reason so it's not. It, uh, don't get too hung up on the details. Is my recommendation. Uh, going back to Kit's comment of when is it destructive? Mm. Uh, they used to build a lot of houses on spec, and they would assume the house was or the the market was going to grow at a certain rate. Companies do this on a hope and a prayer, and they pull out arbitrary numbers that have nothing to do with market trends. And so, say the market contracted six percent, and they're expecting to grow at fifty percent. So what do they do? They look at their go-to-market and they look at how they're going to make up that difference. And so sometimes they'll push their reps harder. Maybe they'll buy a software. Most of the time they just hire more people. But what they do is they don't scale based on like the performance of an individual rep. They look at how much they assume they'll need to get to that point. And they'll overhire typically, especially after a funding round. 
And so where this pressure comes from, not only do they want more leads because it's easier work and they don't know who to talk to, but you're not scaling the company based off of production. You're scaling the company off a future that you're trying to sell. And so one of the things I've seen high performance companies do is they actually have a pipeline of people as well. And so they nurture this process over 30, 60, 90 days. And they're very respectful and honest with these people, but then they know how many people they need to hire at what time, if it's more marketing, if it's more sales, customer success, and that's how they do it. But they also take these numbers and they look at ramp. So you hired a new rep. Where are they starting from? What is their starting point? And where do they need to be to go and keep up with the rest? And so that can be part of your ramp as well so that you can individualize that program and work with them and train them in a way that is meaningful. So a lot of this, like when it comes right down to it, this number doesn't matter unless you're using it for something productive. But the reality is so many people use closing rate as a means to fire or punish. And this is why sales suffers in silence is because there is no reason to be honest with our managers because our managers aren't actually in it for us. And so we need to change this culture so that we are working as a team. Same with sales and marketing. You know, if if marketing thinks all sales is going to tell them is what you're doing sucks, you know, why would they want to work with us? And vice versa. We have to open this, have this open channel of communication where we're working as a team and that it's supported by both teams and nobody's talking shit behind their backs because all they're going to do is have a great conversation and then go and do nothing right after. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. Do you want to pull up Kit's recent comment? Because I think this adds yes. color too. <laughs> this is very common. To help clarify, our sales team and marketing team used to bicker all day about how the leads for marketing aren't qualified just because they visited the site doesn't qualify them. Hmm? While the marketing team worked to validate their work saying the sales team wasn't working the leads, not nurturing them, in the right way to close the sale. Uh, so this is something that happens at just about every company we've talked to. <laughs> it's not an uncommon issue. Um, the the reality, for me at least, the very basic is that it uh, for companies that encounter this problem, it's marketing and sales are judged on two different metrics. And so the carrot and the stick for each team is different. And taking instead a revenue intelligence approach or, or a rev ops approach or however, looking at total revenue helps uh, incentivize the teams to do better. Now, does that you know resolve intraturf war- wars? No, uh, of course not. But I do think that it is on sales managers, directors, and leadership to help, uh, and also marketing directors and leadership, to help bridge these gaps and help see, you know, what's going wrong. Honestly, more than anything, what Nick and I have encountered, and Nick, you can disagree with this, but I hear this so much. It's when the company itself, both marketing and sales, do not have the right amount of knowledge of the market and the accounts that they're going after and the competitive intelligence to be able not only just to know the difference between your competitors and have that filter into sales calls or have that filter into marketing copy, as well as the positioning that you have to develop um, as a result of that competitive intelligence and an understanding of the accounts that you'd like to sell to, if that stuff isn't in place, the specific tactics that a particular sales rep take 
or a particular marketing specialist takes on a campaign are going to make marginal impact on the pipeline. The real impact, the leverage point, comes from that market knowledge. If you know that based on sales conversations, based on research, based on marketing insights and all the rest, that you are targeting a particular persona at a company in X industry that's at a certain revenue percentage, and they tend to look for one, two, three different things, not only should that be in your marketing copy, but that's also going to show up in your sales conversations. I'm and that so also leads to better conversations. Up, Morgan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what about intent? Mm. Not not on the individual side. What is the intent of the marketing? What is the intent of the sales call? People have, they call it, what do you call it? Their spidey senses. Because yeah. the reason that I'm calling today, we, we filter Your extended phrases. car warranty. <laughs> we, we filter phrases because we need to judge quickly. It's a survival instinct that we built thousands of years ago. And so the intent of a lot of marketing is it's not marketing. It's actually just digital sales. It's yeah. promotional garbage. And so when you your intent is they see your, we'll call it social content, but it's really just a promo or an ad. They assume you're just going to click it and go buy. So this is also the disconnect is marketing isn't marketing. It's selling through digital channels. And so when we change the intent, it's the same reason with a cold call. Most cold calls, the intent is to sell. So this is why reps dive into like vicious value propositions that aren't valuable and oh, yeah. piss people off. If the intent is to educate and to see if they're willing to change or if there's a certain psychographic fit, it changes the whole call mm -hmm. because the intent wasn't to sell them on the phone. It was to see if there was a fit to get them into a meeting, a scheduled time to meet. So what we actually need to do is take a step back, Kit, and please let me know if you do this with your team. But look at the intent of your marketing. Look at the past five posts. And, and if you'll see this really easily in Sales Navigator when you go and pull a lead list. Look at what they're posting. Most people blankly reshare crappy company posts that mean nothing to customers. They're, it's just, just, just a justification of actually posting. And so you look at the intent of that. The intent... It doesn't do anything because it wasn't intended to. Right. It was intended to teach employees that they have a new promotion. Instead of going to the Monday morning sales meeting, they put it out on social media for all of them to see. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to take that step back. And not only, like Morgan said, it's so critical to know our market, but we also need to know what, what our intent is with each interaction so that also that timeline, that starting point is relevant, just like our closing rate on the title. Mm-hmm. You know, they do say it's two to three times pipeline, two to three times that if you were tracking from the point they're qualified to the point that you cl close one, it's two to three times that length on average posting good content that's education first. That is the intent is to educate buyers because only 3% of people are in market at any given time. So they say, and with that only, you know, about 40% would be willing to change if it made sense. And this is what we're doing. But this isn't 30 days. It's not 60 days. It could be a year. Mm -hmm. it could be 18 months. But if you're still seeing bickering, challenge the intent and make sure that you can get alignment on all parties. Right. And and we've discussed this on a, I, I know we've discussed this on some previous shows, but just to restate this for posterity's sake, 
marketing needs to get better at understanding behavior on a site and what buyers actually want. And this is why, in my view, ungating content is a good thing right now because buyers just want ungated content. They just want to know. And the reason is because there's a competition in the marketplace. And so other buyers are ungating their content. And so if they have to put in their name and email to reach your stuff, but they can reach your competitor's stuff without putting in their name and their email, they're probably just going to read their competitor's stuff. And that's because you understand your buyers. That's because you know buyers don't want to do that anymore. And not, and obviously, market trends and insights are important. But because all of us on this live show and people we talk to in our own worlds work in different industries, there's going to be little nuances when it comes to our industry. There's going to be little stuff that we, you know some person in uh, fintech doesn't know about selling specialized APIs that's a, like a B2B SaaS product, and that's fine. It's getting to know who you're trying to buy to and what they need. And chances are, right now, at a broad blanket statement, sending them a weekly newsletter is not going to help them. Sending them a nurture sequence in their email, probably not going to help them unless if it's like a high intense specific offer, they only want it. But then marketing teams go and abuse that and then they keep on sending stuff after they've sent them the original thing and that's horrible. And then you lose trust and brand equity and people tune you out. So then when the sales rep reaches out to that company, they're like, ah, oh, somebody else from this company wants to talk to me. Yeah, right. I'm not, I don't have time to do that. So it's, and it's to Nick's question, what's the, what is the purpose? of these activities, whether it's the purpose of the sales call, the discovery call, the qualification call, the purpose of putting out gated content versus ungated content, all it is is just to serve the buyer. That's all we have to do. And it's very simple. It's very simple. It's not easy because we don't know enough about our buyers most of the time. And not just talking to customers, but also doing market research, also reviewing your one lost accounts, also talking with your existing customers, also talking with your competitors. That's a great place to start building the insight to understand what your buyers actually want. The reason that lemonade sales work on a street corner in a residential neighborhood is because everyone around there wants to support the little kid selling lemonade. It's not because the lemonade is any better than the lemonade they can buy at the store. It's the same lemonade. But people are bought into that idea that they should probably support their neighbor's kids in learning a little thing about money and learning a little thing about having a lemonade stand. Same goes for all of our industries. The reason it works is because we serve people and we serve what they need in their companies and in their work life. And all we have to do is match that, understand it, and serve it. And uh, I, I wish it was easy, like we could wake up tomorrow and do that, but that's like a compass for me. Like, what do they need? I don't know. Let's go find out. Soapbox, wh wherever it went. Um, wherever it went. Dismounting. <laughs> I'm going to pull up this from Jonathan. And please, this is the time. If you guys oh, yeah. have any questions, comments, throw them in here. This is the perfect time for us to dive in. Give us scenarios. Give us stories. Let's get it in here. Because this is how we learn together. I work for a company that actually forced us to reshare their branded garbage. I mean, content daily. <laughs> uh, so if you shared a contact with, say, 10 colleagues, that contact the same post and then 10 times. Yeah. I refused and posted content that was industry relative uh, without my former company's logo on it. I would too. Yeah. It, the thing is, 
And this is the funny part. And I've heard this said a few times. Good salespeople aren't idiots. We see what's not working because we are in the grinding every day, you know, boots on the ground. When something doesn't work, we know. So if we see, I think that honestly, the real reason why more salespeople are moving to marketing is because it works. What did somebody tell me the other day? Oh, yeah. Your brand is your SDR. Mm. So good. That one just resonates so well because it works. It books meetings for you. But your company's garbage content. What What's the point? What is the point of following you? If they trust you and they want to go and hear from you, if you don't add your own spin on that content, there's no value in it because then they just might as well follow the company page and get that. But the, what they want to know is your curation of that. How do you feel about it? What make, why do, why do you care? Because you are their voice. You are the one that's taking the garbage, filtering it through and like, this is why you guys should care about this. And that is why people follow each other on LinkedIn or any social platform is that curation or what is the intent? Well, I go and follow TikTok because I just want to laugh or I follow your YouTube channel because I just want to go and dive into the specific topics I have questions about. You know, why do you guys follow us? Is it because you want to book more meetings? Is it because you want to close more sales? Seems to be the most common too. You want to get better on LinkedIn? Let us know too. And we'll go and produce more of that content. But yeah, we can't, we can't do that. We got to change the intent if we want to change our numbers Mm -hmm. and use those numbers as guides to go and drive all of that. I was saying to a colleague the other day that uh, one of the things I miss so much in sales is account strategy and deal reviews. <laughs> when was the last time you sat down with your sales manager or leadership to be part of the strategy? How are we working this account? Um, I don't know if I told you this, Morgan. I tried a new strategy where I was looking at how many hours I could apply based on the deal size. And mm. I looked at the margins, so approximate margins on that deal. And I gave a time allocation. And on that time allocation, I applied my go-to-market and I looked at, okay, how much time can I afford to be on cold calls? How much time can I afford to go and directly message and comment on LinkedIn? When we do this, now it becomes a system. Now it can be tracked. (laughs) It doesn't need to be impersonal though. It just means we're being accountable to making sure that the business is profitable. That's all. Absolutely. And it works really well because there's no guesswork anymore. Oh, you mm-hmm. have a identif- you know, identify that target account. Hmm. Well, it's $250,000 sale, you know, 10%, 5% margin. So I can put in five hours. Okay. How am I going to invest those five hours to get the result we need? Right. And quickly, how do I get in, you know, spend those first like half an hour, 15 minutes to make sure that it's even worth pursuing this deal at all? And I think yes. that's missed by too many companies. Absolutely. And all of this relates back to our headline question from today as well, which is, what is an acceptable closing rate on sales? And I mean, we've gone through the answer on this show already, so we don't need to restate that. But the the reality for me, and, and I get to say this as somewhat of a distanced partner on this, because <laughs> um, in, in my world, having been an entrepreneur for however long, like... I'm my own salesperson, and so there's a certain percentage I see, but it's not the same. So to interact with sales teams where they are assigned certain quotas and they are assigned certain activity metrics and vanity metrics that 
are, in my view, part of the personality-driven pipeline, it results in all sorts of skewed incentives and not a lot of strategic thought around, what does this mean for our bottom line? What does this mm -hmm. mean for our company? And like, okay, great, we could boost closing rates from 19% to 22%, and that would make a substantial impact on our bottom line, for example. However, there's not, you know, doing more of the same is not necessarily the best path to that success. There are alternative ways that Nick has brought up, not just like social selling and other ways of getting in front of your customers, but also different metrics to track as well. And, mm -hmm. and having considerable thought around not just the ROI on an individual salesperson in the team and what that means for the bottom line and how much time it takes to win a client and investing too much in an individual sale, but also thinking through comprehensive and strategic ways to know your customer better. And like sales gets that just by doing their job, mm -hmm. but there's more strategic ways to review and share that information and build revenue intelligence that could drive a performance-driven pipeline between marketing and sales like we've been talking about. Anyways. Yeah, and as you guys are diving into the podcast over the next little bit, I'll burst the bubble here. Oh, yes. Go for it. We're going to be diving into market research. We're going to be looking at account strategies. We're going to dive into how to figure out which personas you should be talking to and going through these qualifications and even diving into medic and other qualification uh, frameworks because we realize it's such a gray area and that it's missing. And even going back in my, like all my recent experiences, it's the hardest thing for a new agent to jump into is to know who you should be talking to. So if we can add clarity to such a gray topic, it's going to help a lot of people. So watch on the podcast. We're going to be diving in. We're doing an expert series to actually talk to the people that know a lot about this instead of just mm -hmm. stating our opinions and, uh, well-informed ones, but informed still ones. But <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to dive into it with different experts and pull it together for you guys. And, who knows? Maybe you'll get a guide out of it at the end. Yeah, something like that. Cheat Thank cheat. you, everyone, for uh, joining today. La happy Friday. And uh, I hope everyone took away something. If there's any questions, please DM us on LinkedIn. We'd be happy to have a conversation, I know, uh, and explore this further for your company or uh, for a specific situation you're encountering. Um, and otherwise, as Nick always says, happy selling. <laughs> happy selling. Take care. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.